You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha, and the Wolfram Language. In this episode, How We Got Here, the backstory of the Wolfram Physics Project, part two of three. Let's have a listen. Let's start with the beginning of the story. As a young kid growing up in England in the 1960s, I viewed the space program as a kind of beacon of the future, and I intently followed it. But when I wanted to know more about how spacecraft and their instruments worked, I realized I had to learn about physics. And soon I left space behind and was deeply into physics. I was probably 11 years old when I started reading my first college physics textbook. And when I was 12, I compiled a concise directory of physics with 111 pages of carefully typed information and data about physics. All this information collection had definite shades of Wolfram Alphaism. And the visualizations that I had in this concise directory of physics presaged a lifelong interest in information presentation. But my concise directory also had something else, pages listing the elementary particles. And soon these became my great obsession. The pions, the kaons, the muon, the cascade hyperons. To me, they were the ultimate story in science, and I was learning all their quirks. The K0 isn't its own antiparticle. The omega minus has strangeness minus three. I spent the summer when I was 13 writing the 132-page single-space typed The Physics of Subatomic Particles. At the time, I basically showed it to no one, and it's strange to look at now 47 years later. It's basically an exposition of particle physics told in a historical arc. Some of it is shockingly similar to what I was just talking about, except for the change of tense in the Americanization. Let me read you a little piece of it. It says, There is currently a considerable amount of disagreement between the proponents of the so-called analytic S-matrix theory and those of ordinary field theory. While some suggest the complete abandonment of field theory because of such problems as renormalization, others calculate, for example, the properties of the hydrogen atom. And so it goes on. It's charming to read my 13-year-old self's explanation of quantum field theory, not bad, or my authoritative description of a just-proposed theory of the muon that I'm guessing I found out about from New Scientist and that turned out to be completely wrong. By the next summer, I was writing a 230-page treatise, Introduction to the Weak Interaction, featuring some of my most favorite elementary particles and showing a pretty good grasp of quantum mechanics and field theory. Pretty soon, I had reached the edge of what was known in particle physics, but so far what I had done was basically exposition. I hadn't really tried to figure out new things. But by the summer of 1974, it was increasingly clear that something unexpected was going on in physics. Several experiments were showing an unanticipated rise in the electron-positron annihilation cross-section, and then rather dramatically in November the J-Psi particle was discovered. It was all a big surprise, and at first people had no idea what was going on. But 14-year-old me decided I was going to figure it out. Those were days long before the web, and it wasn't easy to get the latest information. But from where I lived when I wasn't at school, I was about a six-mile bicycle ride to the nearest university library, and I did it often. And pretty soon I had come up with a theory... Maybe, contrary to what had long been believed, the electron is not in fact a point particle, but actually has internal structure. By then I had read many academic papers, and pretty soon I had written one of my own. Took two tries, but then there it was, my first published paper, complete, I now notice, with some self-references to earlier work of mine in true academic style. Paper entitled, Hadronic Electrons? Question mark. It was a creative and decently written paper, but it was technically a bit weak. Heck, I was only 15, and at the time, its main idea did not pan out. But of course, there's an irony to all this, because guess what? 
45 years later, in our current model for fundamental physics, the electron is once again not a point particle. Back in 1975, though, I thought maybe it had a radius of 10 to the minus 18 meters. Now I think it's more likely 10 to the minus 81 meters. So at the very least, 15-year-old me was wrong by 63 orders of magnitude. Being a teenage physicist had its interesting features. At my boarding school, the older than the discovery of America, Eaton, there was much amusement when mail came addressed to me as Dr. S. Wolfram. Soon I started doing day trips to go to the physics seminars in Oxford and interacting with real physicists from the international physics community. I think I was viewed as an exotic phenomenon, usually referred to in a rather Wild West way as the kid. Years later, I was amused when one of my children, precocious in a completely different domain, earned the very same nickname. I really loved physics, and I wanted to do as much physics as I could. I had started using computers back in 1973, basically to do physics simulations, and by 1976, I'd realized something important about computers. The one thing I didn't like about physics was that it involved doing all sorts of, to me, tedious mathematical calculations, but I realized that I could get computers to do those for me. And needless to say, that's how, eventually, Mathematica, Wolfram Alpha, etc. came to be. I left high school when I was 16, worked doing physics at a government lab in England for about six months, and then went to Oxford. By this point, I was producing physics papers at a decent rate, and the papers were getting progressively better, or at least good enough that by age 17, I'd had my first run-in with academic thievery. Mostly, I worked on particle physics, at the time by far the hottest area of physics, but I was also very interested in questions like the origin of the second law of thermodynamics, and particularly its relation to gravity. If things always become more disordered, how come galaxies form, etc.? And from this, as well as questions like where's the antimatter in the universe, I got interested in cosmology, and inevitably in connecting it to particle physics. Nowadays, everyone knows about that connection, but back then, few people were interested in it. Particle physics, though, was a completely different story. There were exciting discoveries practically every week, and the best and the brightest were going into the field. QCD, the theory of quarks and gluons, was taking off, and I had a great time doing some of the, quotes obvious calculations. And of course, I had my secret weapon, computers. I've never really understood why other people weren't using them, but for me, they were critical. They let me figure out all this stuff other people couldn't. And I think the process of writing programs made me a better physicist, too. Looking at my papers from back then, the notation and structure got cleaner and cleaner, as might befit a future lifelong language designer. After a bit more than a year in Oxford, and now with 10 physics papers to my name, I dropped out of college and went to Caltech as a graduate student. It was a very productive time for me. At the peak, I was writing a physics paper every couple of weeks on a, quite a range of topics. And it's nice to see that some of those papers still get referenced today, 40 years later. Caltech was at the time a world center for particle physics, with almost everyone who was someone coming through at one time or another. Most of them were much older than me, but I still got to know them, and not just as names in the physics literature, but as real people with their various quirks. Murray Gell-Mann and Richard Feynman were the two biggest names in physics at Caltech at the time. I got on particularly well with Feynman, even if in his rather competitive way he would often lament that he was three times my age. In the way these things come around, I'm now the same age as he was when I first met him. After a bit more than a year, I put together some of the papers I'd written, officially got my PhD, and took up a nice research faculty position at Caltech. I'd had the goal of being a physicist since I was about 10 years old, and now at age 20, I was actually officially a physicist. So what now, I wondered. There were lots of things I wanted to do in physics, but I felt limited by the computer tools I had, 
So actually, within a couple of weeks of getting my PhD, I resolved that I should spend the time just to build the tools I needed. And that's how I came to start developing my first big computer system and language. I approached it a bit like a problem in natural science, trying to develop a theory, find principles, etc. But it was different from anything I'd done before. It wasn't constrained by the universe as the universe is. I just had to invent abstract structures that would fit together and be useful. The system that I built, that I called SMP for Symbolic Manipulation Program, had all sorts of ideas, some good, some not so good. One of the most abstract and arguably obscure ideas had to do with controlling how recursive evaluation works. I thought it was neat and perhaps powerful, but I don't think anyone, including me, ever really understood how to use it, and in the end it was effectively relegated to a footnote. But here's the irony. That footnote is now a front and center issue in our models of fundamental physics, and there's more. Around the time I was building SMP, I was also thinking a lot about gauge theories in physics. So there I was thinking about recursion control and about gauge invariance, two utterly unrelated things, or so I thought, until just recently when I realized that in some fundamental sense, they're actually the same thing. It took a couple of years to build the first version of SMP. I continued to do particle physics, though I could already feel that the field was cooling and my interests were beginning to run to more general theoretical questions. SMP was my first large-scale practical project, and not only did it involve all sorts of software engineering, it also involved managing a team and ultimately starting my first company. Physicists I knew could already tell I was slipping away from physics. You can't leave physics, they would say. You're really good at this. I still liked physics, and I particularly liked its let's-just-figure-this-out attitude. But now I wasn't just applying that methodology in quantum field theory and cosmology, I was also using it in language design, in software development, in entrepreneurism, and in other things. And it was working great. The process of starting my first company was fraught with ahead of my time in the interaction between companies and universities issues that ultimately caused me to leave Caltech. And right in the middle of that, I decided I needed to take a break from my mainline beer physicist activities and just spend some time doing something fun. I've been thinking for a long time about how it is that complex things manage to happen in nature. My two favorite examples were neural networks. Yes, back in 1981, though I never figured out how to make them do anything very useful back then, and self-gravitating gases. And in my just-have-fun approach, I decided to try to make the most minimal model I could, even if it didn't really have much to do with either of these examples, or officially with physics. It probably helped that I'd spent all that time developing SMP and was basically used to just inventing abstract things from scratch. But in any case, what I came up with were very simple rules for arrays of zeros and ones. I was pretty sure that, as such, they wouldn't do anything interesting. But it was basically trivial for me to try just running them on a computer, and so I did. And what I found was amazing, and gradually changed my whole outlook on science and really my whole worldview, and sowed the seeds that have now, I believe, brought us a path to the fundamental theory of physics. What I was looking at were basically some of the very simplest programs one can imagine. And I assumed that programs that simple wouldn't be able to behave in anything other than simple ways. But what I actually saw in my first computer experiment, a picture that uh, you can see of a bunch of, uh, bunch of triangles and uh, different kinds of shapes. Yes, some of the behavior is simple, and some of it involves nice, recognizable fractal patterns. But then there are other things going on, like my all-time favorite, what I call Rule 30. If you look at a picture of that, you'll see that it starts from just one dot at the top and produces this triangle of really quite random stuff. At first, I didn't understand what I was seeing, and I was convinced that somehow the simplicity of the underlying rules must ultimately force the behavior to be simple. 
I tried using all sorts of methods from physics, mathematics, computer science, statistics, cryptography, and so on to crack these systems, but I always failed. And gradually I began to realize that something fundamental was going on, that somehow in just running their rules, simple as they were, these systems were intrinsically creating some kind of irreducible complexity. I started writing papers about what I discovered, first couched in very physics-oriented terms. An early important paper of mine in that area was called Statistical Mechanics of Cellular Automata. The papers were well-received in, in physics, in mathematics, and in other fields too, like biology, where perhaps it helped that in a nod to historical antecedents, I called my models cellular automata, although I meant abstract cells, not biological ones. Meanwhile, I had moved to the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, where there were still people telling stories about their interactions with Kurt Gödel and Johnny von Neumann and his computer, and where, yes, my office was upstairs from where Einstein had once worked. I started building up a whole effort around studying complexity and how it could arise from simple rules, and gradually I started to realize that what I'd seen in that little computer experiment in 1981 was actually a first sign of something very big and very important. Looking back, I see that experiment as my personal analog of turning a telescope to the sky and seeing the moons of Jupiter. But the challenge was really to understand the significance of what I'd seen, which in the end took me decades. But the first step was just to start thinking, not in terms of the kinds of methods I'd used in physics, but instead fundamentally in terms of computation, treating computation not just as a methodology, but a paradigm. The summer of 1984 was when I think I finally began to seriously understand computation as a paradigm. Early that summer, I'd finally recognized Rule 30 for what it was, a powerful computational system. Then in writing an article for Scientific American, nominally on computer software in science and mathematics, I came up with the term computational irreducibility and began to understand its significance. That fall, I wrote a short paper that outlined the correspondence with physics and the fundamental implications which now loom large in our current project of computational irreducibility for physics. It's a paper published in Physical Review Letters entitled Undecidability and Intractability in Theoretical Physics. One of the nice things for me about the Institute for Advanced Study is that it was a small place with not only physicists but also lots of world-class mathematicians. I had interacted a bit with Michael Atier and Roger Penrose about mathematics for physics when I was in Oxford, but at Caltech it was physics and nothing but. Two top-of-the-line mathematicians, John Milner and Bill Thurston, both got interested in my cellular automata. But try as they might, they could prove pretty much nothing. They basically hit a wall of computational irreducibility. Yes, there is undecidability in mathematics, as we've known since Gödel's theorem, but the mathematics that mathematicians usually work on is basically set up to not run into it. But just being plucked from the computational universe, my cellular automata don't get to avoid it. And ultimately, our physics project will run into the same issues. But one of the wonderful things that's become clear in the last few months is that actually there's quite a layer of computational reducibility in our models of physics, which is critical for our ability to perceive the world coherently, but also makes math able to be useful. But back to the story. In addition to my life doing basic science, I had a hobby of doing consulting for tech companies. One of those companies was a certain ultimately poorly named Thinking Machines Corporation that made massively parallel computers that happened to be ideally suited to running cellular automata. And in an effort to find uses for their computers, I decided to see whether one could model fluid flow with cellular automata. The idea was to start not with the standard physics equations for fluid flow, but instead just to have lots of computational particles with very simple rules, and then see whether on a large scale fluid flow could emerge. As it turned out, with my interest in the second law of thermodynamics, I'd actually tried something quite similar back in 1973, 
as one of the very first programs I ever wrote. But I hadn't seen anything interesting then, partly because of what one might think of as a piece of technical bad luck, but probably more importantly because I just didn't yet grasp the paradigm that would allow me to understand what was going on. But in 1985, I did understand, and it was neat. From tiny computational rules that didn't immediately have physics in them was emerging a piece of physics that was normally described with the equations of physics. And yes, now it looks like that's how all of physics may work. But we'll come to that. By 1985, I was pretty clear on the notion that one could use the computational paradigm and the methods around it to explore a wide range of phenomena and questions. But for me, the killer app was understanding the origins of complexity and trying to build a general theory of complexity. It wasn't physics, it wasn't mathematics, it wasn't computer science. It was something new. I called it complex systems theory, avoiding at least for a while a pre-existing and completely different field of computer science called complexity theory. I was 25 years old, but already pretty established in science with mainstream cred from my early work in physics and a lot of momentum from my work in complexity and in practical computing. I liked a lot doing complex systems research myself, but I thought that to really make progress, more people needed to be involved. So I started organizing. I launched a journal, which is still thriving today, and then I talked to universities and other places to see where the best place to start a research center would be. Eventually, I picked University of Illinois, and so in the fall of 1986, there I went, themed as a professor of physics, mathematics, and computer science, and director of the Center for Complex Systems Research. It was a good setup, but I quickly realized it wasn't a good fit for me. Yes, I can organize things, and yes, I've been a CEO now for more than half my life, but I do best when I'm organizing my own things rather than being inside another organization. And most important, I like actually doing things, like science, myself. So rather quickly, I went to plan B. Instead of trying to get lots of other people to help push forward the science I wanted to see done, I'd set myself up to be as efficient as possible, and then I'd try to just do what I thought should be done myself. But the first thing I needed was good computational tools. And so it was that I started to build Mathematica, and what's now the Wolfram language, and to start my company, Wolfram Research. We launched the first version of Mathematica in June 1988, and I think it's fair to say that it was an instant hit. Physicists were particularly keen on it, and rather quickly, it induced an interesting transition. Before Mathematica, if a typical physicist needed to compute something on a computer, they'd delegate it to someone else to actually do. But Mathematica, for the first time, made computing high-level enough that physicists themselves could do their own computations. And it's been wonderful to see over the years the immense amounts of physics research done with the tools we built. It's very nice to have been told many times that apart from the internet, Mathematica is the single largest methodological advance in the doing of physics in this generation. For a few years, the rapid development of Mathematica in our company entirely consumed me. But by 1991, it was clear that if I concentrated full-time on it, I could generate far more ideas than our company at the size it then was could possibly absorb. And so I decided it was time for me to execute the next step in my plan and start actually using the tools we developed to do the science I wanted to do. And so in 1991, I became a remote CEO, as I still am, and started work on my science project. Pretty quickly, I had a table of contents for a book I planned to write that would work through the consequences of the computational paradigm for complexity and other things. Part of it was going to be exploration, going out into the computational universe and studying what programs do, and part was going to be applications, seeing how to apply what I'd learned to different areas of science and beyond. I didn't know what I'd end up discovering, but I figured the process of writing the book would take a year or two. My first question was just how general the phenomena I'd discovered in cellular automata actually were. 
Did they depend on things updating in parallel? Did they depend on having discrete cells? And so on. I started doing computer experiments. Often I'd think, this is finally a kind of system that just isn't going to do anything interesting. And I kept on being wrong. I developed a mantra. The computational animals are always smarter than you are. Even when you can give all sorts of arguments about why such and such a system can't do anything interesting, it'll find a way to surprise you and do something you'd never predict. What was going on? I realized it was something very general and very fundamental to basically any system. I call it the principle of computational equivalence, and it's now the guiding principle for a lot of my thinking. It explains computational irreducibility. It gives us a way to organize the computational universe. It tells us about the power of minds. It shows us how to think about the possibilities of artificial intelligence. It gives us perspectives on alien intelligence. It gives us a way to think about free will. And now it seems to give us a way to understand some ultimate questions about our perception of possible physical universes. I think it was in 1990, right before I began the book project, that I started wondering about applying my ideas to fundamental physics. There'd been a whole digital physics movement, particularly involving my friend Ed Fredkin, around using cellular automata to model fundamental physics. But frankly, it had put me off. I'd hear, I've discovered an electron in my cellular automaton, but it just sounded like nonsense to me. For goodness sake, learn what's already known in physics, I would say. Of course, I loved cellular automata, but particularly with their rigid built-in notions of space and time, I didn't think they could ever be more than allegories or toy models for actual physics. And pushing them as more than that seemed damaging, and I didn't like it. But okay, so not cellular automata. But what underlying computational structure might actually work? I was pretty sure it had to be something that didn't have its own built-in notion of space. And immediately I started thinking about networks. Things like cellular automata are very clean and easy to define and program on a computer. Networks, at least in their most obvious form, aren't. My first foray into studying network-based systems was in 1992 and wound up as uh, part of Chapter 5, Two Dimensions and Beyond. And like every other kind of system I studied, I found that these network systems could generate complex behavior. By 1993, I'd studied lots of kinds of abstract systems, and I was working down the table of contents in my planned book and starting to ask questions like, what can all this tell us about biology? What about human perception? mathematics. And it was quite exciting, because every time I'd look at a new area, I'd realize, yes, the things I've found in the computational universe really tell us new and interesting things here. So finally, in 1994, I decided to try and tackle fundamental physics. I've got this whole shelf of drafts of what became my book, and I just pulled down the versions from 1994. It's already got chapter nine, fundamental physics, but the contents are still embryonic. It gradually grows through 1995 and 1996, and then, in 1997, there it is, sections with names like space as a network, time and causal networks, and so on. I'd figured out the story of how space could be made as the limit of a discrete network and how different possible updating sequences for graphs led to different threads of time, and I'd come up with the idea of causal invariance and realized that it implied special relativity. It also began to understand how curvature in space worked, but it didn't yet have general relativity. I've got all my notebooks from those times, and they're even now in our online archives. It's a little weird to pull them up now and realize how tiny screens were back then. But for the most part, everything still runs, and I can see how I started to do searches for the rule that could build something like our universe. But then I was in year six of my Quotes One Year book project. At the beginning, I called my book Science of Complexity. But even by 1994, I realized that it was a bigger story than that, and I'd renamed the book 
a new kind of science. There was a whole intellectual edifice to discover, and I was determined to work through all the obvious questions so I could coherently describe it. From a personal point of view, it's certainly the hardest project I've ever done. I was still remote CEOing my company, but every day from early in the evening until perhaps 6 a.m., I'd work on science, painstakingly trying to figure out everything I could. On a good day, I'd write a whole page of the book. Sometimes I'd spend the whole day just computing one number that would end up in tiny print in the notes at the back. When I first embarked on the book project, I talked to people quite a bit about it. But then they'd always be saying, what about this? What about that? But no, I had a plan, and if I was ever going to get the project done, I knew I had to stick to it and not get distracted. And so I basically decided to become a hermit, focus intensely on doing the project, and not talk to anyone about it, except that I did have a sequence of research assistants, including some very talented individuals. The years went by. I'd started the book not long after I turned 30. Now I was approaching 40. But slowly, inexorably, I was working through the table of contents and getting towards the end. It was 2001 when I returned to put the finishing touches on Chapter 9. By then, I had a pretty good idea of how general relativity could work in my model, but in 2001, I got it. A derivation of general relativity that was kind of an analogue for the emergence of space-time from networks, of my derivation from 16 years earlier of the emergence of fluid flow from simple cellular automata. And finally, in 2002, after ten and a half years of daily work, my book was finished. And what I had imagined might be a short booklet of perhaps 150 pages had become a 1,280-page tome with nearly a third of a million words of detailed notes at the back. I intended the book to be a presentation, as its title said, of a new kind of science based on the computational paradigm and informed by studying the computational universe of simple programs. But I had wanted to include some use cases, and physics was one of those, along with biology, mathematics, and more. I thought what I had done in physics was a pretty interesting beginning and gave great evidence that the computational paradigm would provide an important new way to think about fundamental physics. As I look back now, I realize that a whole hundred pages of a new kind of science are devoted to physics, but at the time I think I considered them mostly just a supporting argument for the value of the new kind of science I was developing. A new kind of science launched on May 14, 2002 and quickly climbed onto bestseller lists. I don't think there's a perfect way to deliver big ideas to the world, but all the trouble I'd taken trying to package what I'd figured out and trying to make my book as clear and accessible as possible seemed to be paying off. And it was great. Lots of people seemed to get the core ideas of the book. Looking back, though, it's remarkable how often media coverage of the book talked about physics and the idea that the universe might be described by a simple program, complete with headlines like, Is the Universe a Computer? and The Cosmic Code. But as someone who'd studied the history of science for a long time, I full well knew that if the new paradigm I was trying to introduce was as important as I believed, then inevitably it would run into detractors and hostility. But what surprised me was that almost all the hostility came from just one field, physics. There were plenty of physicists who were very positive, but there were others for whom my book somehow seemed to have touched a nerve. As an almost lifelong lover of physics, I didn't see a conflict. But maybe from the outside it was more obvious. As a cartoon in a review of my book in the New York Times with a remarkably prescient headline, perhaps captured. The headline is, You know that space-time thing, never mind. And the cartoon shows a uh, somewhat aged professor standing next to a blackboard with a bunch of equations written on it and a bunch of uh, people in an auditorium looking on. And there is a monster coming from the left with its jaws open with a cellular automaton pattern in its jaws. 
and the professor is looking extremely taken aback and the people in the auditorium are looking extremely shocked. If social media had existed at the time, it would undoubtedly have been different. But as it was, it was a whole unchecked parade, from Nobel Prize winners with pitchforks to a then-graduate student launching their career by proving that my physics was wrong. Why did they feel so strongly? I think they thought, and some of them told me as much, that if I was right, then what they'd done with their traditional mathematical methods and all the wonderful things they'd built would get thrown away. I never saw it that way, and ironically, I made my living building a tool used to support those traditional mathematical methods. But at the time, without social media, I didn't have a useful way to respond. To be fair, it often wasn't clear there was much to say beyond I don't share your convictions or read what the book actually says and don't forget the 300,000 words of notes at the back. But there was unfortunately a casualty from all this. Physics. As it now turns out, and I'm very happy about it, Far from my ideas being in conflict with what's been done in physics, they're actually beautifully aligned. Yes, the foundations are different, but all those traditional mathematical methods now get extra power and extra relevance. But it's taken an additional 18 years for us to find that out, and it almost didn't happen at all. It's been interesting to watch the general progression of the ideas I discussed in a new kind of science. What's been most dramatic, and I'm certainly not solely responsible, has been the quiet but rapid transition after three centuries of new models for things being based not on equations, but instead on programs. It's happened across almost every area, with one notable exception, fundamental physics. Perhaps it's because the tower of mathematical sophistication in models is highest there. Perhaps it's because of the particular stage of development of fundamental physics as a field, and the fact that for the most part, it's in a work out the existing models phase rather than a new models phase. A few months after my book appeared, I did a big lecture tour of universities and the like. People would ask about all kinds of things, but pretty much everywhere, some people, quite often physicists, would ask about fundamental physics. But somewhat to my disappointment, their questions tended to be more philosophical than technical. Somehow, the notion of applying these ideas to fundamental physics was just a little too dangerous to discuss. But I decided that whatever other people might think, I should see what it would take to make progress. So in 2004, I set about expanding what I'd figured out so far. I made my explorations more streamlined than before, and pretty soon I was beginning to write summaries of what was out there with titles like Network Substitution Systems and so on. I never showed these to anyone until now. But there was something that bugged me. Somehow my model felt a bit fragile, a bit contrived. At least with the formalism I had, I couldn't just write down any rule. It was a bit like writing down numbers, but they had to be prime. But there was another more technical problem as well. For my derivations of special and general relativity to work, I needed a model that was causal invariant, and my searches were having a hard time finding non-trivial examples. And right in the middle of trying to figure out what to do about this, something else happened. I started working on Wolfram Alpha. In a sense, Wolfram Alpha was an outgrowth of a new kind of science. Before the book, I had assumed that to build a serious computational knowledge engine, which is something I had in one form or another been interested in since I was a kid, one would first have to solve the general problem of AI. But one of the implications of my principle of computational equivalence is that there is no bright line between intelligence and mere computation. And that meant that with all our computational capabilities, we should be able to build a computational knowledge engine. And so I decided to try it. Of course, at the beginning, we didn't know if it would work. Is there too much data in the world? Is it too hard to make it computable? Is it too hard to understand natural language? And so on. But it did work. And in 2009, we launched Wolfram Alpha. But I was still enthusiastic about my physics project. 
And in February 2010, I made it a major part of a talk I gave at TED, which the TED team initially titled Computing a Theory of Everything. Confusingly, there now also seems to be a version of the same talk with the alternate title Computing a Theory of All Knowledge. And as I was recently reminded, I told the audience that I was committed to suing the project done, quotes, to see if within this decade, we can finally hold in our hands the rule for our universe. Okay, well, it's now April 2020. We didn't make it within the decade, though almost exactly 10 years later, we're now launching the Wolfram Physics Project, and I think we're finally on a path to it. So why didn't this happen sooner? Frankly, in retrospect, it should have. And if I'd known what I know now, I absolutely would have done it. Yes, our Wolfram language technology has gotten better in the course of the decade, and that's made the project considerably easier. But looking back at what I had done even in 2004, I can now see that I was absolutely on the right track, and I could have done almost everything that I'm doing now. Most of the projects I've ever done in my life, from my concise directory of physics onward, I've done first and foremost because I was interested in them, and because I thought I would find them intellectually fulfilling. But particularly as I've gotten older, there's been another increasingly important factor, I find I get pleasure out of doing projects that I think other people will find useful and will get their own fulfillment out of. And with the tools I built, like Mathematica and Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language, as well as with a new kind of science and my other books and writings, that's worked well, and it's been a source of great satisfaction to me. But with the physics project, there was a problem. Because after I effectively tested the market in 2002, it seemed as if my core target customers, i.e. physicists interested in fundamental physics, didn't want the project. And in fact, a few of them came right out and said it. Please don't do that project. I personally thought the project would be really interesting, but it wasn't the only project I thought would be interesting. And basically I said, nah, let me not put lots of effort into a project people basically don't want. What did I do instead? The most important theme of the past decade for me has been the emergence of the Wolfram language as a full-scale computational language and my increasing realization of the significance of having such a language. I view it as being a key step in the development of the computational paradigm and the crucial link between what computation makes possible and the way we humans think about things. It provides a way for us to express ourselves and organize our thoughts in computational terms. I view it in some ways as analogous to the creation of mathematical notation four centuries or so ago. And just as that launched the modern development of mathematical science and mathematical thinking, so now I believe that having a full-scale computational language will open up the development of all the computational X fields and the full potential of computational thinking. And this is not something just limited to science. Through ideas like computational contracts, I think it's going to inform a lot of how our world operates in the years to come and how we want to shape through ethics and so on what AIs do and how we define the future of the human condition. It's not yet nearly as obvious as it will become, but I think computational language is eventually going to be seen as a pivotal intellectual idea of our times. It also has the rare and interesting feature of being something that is both fundamental and creative. It's about drilling down to find the essence both of our thinking and of what computation makes possible. But it's also about the creative design of a language. And for me personally, it's in many ways the ideal project. It involves deep understanding across as many areas as possible. It involves the continual exercise of creativity. And it's also a big project that benefits from organizational skills and resources. And I'm very happy indeed to have spent the past decade on it. Sometimes I've thought about how it compares as a project to fundamental physics. 
At a practical level, building a computational language is like building a progressively taller tower, from which one can progressively see further and occasionally reach major new kinds of applications and implications. Fundamental physics is much more of a one-shot project. You try an approach to fundamental physics and either it works or it doesn't. There's not the same kind of feeling of progressively building something. Computational language also began to feel to me like an ultimately more fundamental project, at least for us humans, than fundamental physics, because it's about the generality of computation and the generality of our ways of thinking, not the specifics of the physical universe in which we happen to exist. And as I thought about the distant future, complete with my box of a trillion souls image, the physical universe seemed less and less relevant to the essence of the human condition. As a kind of disembodied human soul, it doesn't matter what the underlying machine code of the universe is. You're operating just at the level of abstract computation. So maybe the fundamental theory of physics is ultimately just an implementation note. As I now realize from our recent discoveries, the actual situation is more nuanced and much more philosophically fascinating. But even though my main focus has been computational language and its implications, I've been doing quite a few other things. Occasionally, I've even written about physics. And I've kept thinking about the fundamental physics project. Is there a positive way, I wondered, to do the project so as many people as possible will be pleased to see it done? I wondered about offering a prize for finishing what I had started. I had a great experience with something like that in 2007 when Alex Smith won the prize I had set up for proving my conjecture that a particular Turing machine was universal, thereby establishing what the very simplest possible universal Turing machine is. And in fact, last fall, I put up some new prizes for long-standing questions about Rule 30. But for fundamental physics, I didn't think a prize could work. For the Turing machine problem or the Rule 30 problems, it's realistic for someone to just swoop in and figure it out. For fundamental physics, there's a big tower of ideas to learn just to get started. From time to time, I would talk to physicists, friends of mine, about the fundamental physics project. I usually didn't even try with physicists I didn't know. They would just give me quizzical looks, and I could tell they were uncomfortably wondering if I had lost my marbles. But even with my friends, when I started to describe the details of the project, I don't think over the course of 18 years I managed to keep anyone's attention for more than 15 minutes. And quite soon I would just ask, so what's new in physics as far as you're concerned? And off we would go, talking about string theory or particle phenomenology or conformal field theory or whatever. And sometimes they would say, surprised that I cared, wow, you still really know about this stuff. Finally, though, a few years ago, I had an idea about the Fundamental Physics Project. Why not just do the project as an educational project? Say, more or less, we're going to try to climb the Mount Everest of science. We don't know if we'll succeed, but you might enjoy seeing what we do in trying to make the climb. After all, when I talked to non-physicists or kids about the project, they were often very excited and very curious. And with all the effort put into STEM education and into encouraging people to learn about science, I thought this would be a good opportunity. But whenever I really thought about doing the project, and I was still assuming we'd just be starting the climb, I had no idea we'd be able to get as far as we have now, I came back to the problem of the physicists, or fizzies as I nicknamed them, and I didn't have a solution. And so it was that year after year, my project of trying to find the fundamental theory of physics languished. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can learn more about the Wolfram Physics Project at wolframphysics.org. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com. <laughs>